For almost 200 years, readers have thrilled to the adventures of the Three Musketeers in Alexandre Dumas' most famous novel. Athos, Porthos, and Aramis are joined by the brash young Gascon d'Artagnan as brave warriors caught in the power struggle between France and England, King and Cardinal, and the injustices of the Ancien Regime. They face off against Milady, a femme fatale far more interesting than her name might imply. Put in just a bit of effort, Dumas. Comedy, swashbuckling, and cavalier hijinks ensue. You might think two centuries is enough of a pedigree as a classic, but no. We've decided to read this giant book and judge for ourselves. So get yourself some Anjou wine, and maybe have someone else taste it first for safety's sake. It's time for episode 83 of Toasting the Classics, The Three Musketeers. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic. This time, I think everybody calls this thing a classic. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree that it is a classic, but other people call it a classic. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to drink something inspired by the classic and then decide if it deserves classicity. I got with me the returning champions of the 48 Hours episode and other favorite episodes of Toasting the Classics, Chris Gregg and Bill Hodges. Introduce yourself, guys. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Gregg. And I'm Bill Hodges. I could not remember for the life of me how we arrived at this choice. I mean, it's a reasonable choice. I don't mean it like that. But I, how did this come up? I, I think it was my idea. Okay. <laughs> As a right. matter of fact, I know it was my idea. Okay. It's one of those I've been, it's been living in my head for a long time. We had originally decided on Big Lebowski. And so naturally, Chris decided that we were doing The Three Musketeers. I think that's I mean, what originally I- we had decided to do a movie, a breezy two-hour movie, and Chris chimed in with, why don't we spend 35 hours reading an enormous tome? So, okay, man, you know, we can't do movies every week. That would be no, boring. no, no, we shouldn't do movies all the time. I agree with that. But I do have to say, we started out with Gulag Archipelago on the show. That was the first book we read, and it was 1,800 pages. And yeah. we have since been sort of uh, bringing down the page total on those books as we <laughs> as we do the show, because it's just it's just hard to justify when it's my choice to suggest a book. It's hard to justify saying to Clint, listen, you know, like I actually would really like to read, for example, any one of Dickens's novels. I don't remember if I've ever read an adult version of Dickens books other than Great Expectations. I read a bunch of abridgments when I was a kid. But I would sit, I would read something like Nicholas Nickleby, but I wouldn't do that to Clint. And, you know, you got a couple of weeks to read something like that. That's not fair. So we haven't done it. But we had we, we sort of had an open clock on this one. Um, how long were you guys working on reading this book? By the way, what are we reading? We're reading Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. Oh, is that how you pronounce it? That's a lot less fun than how I was saying it, but okay. Yeah, so we went, we went with uh, the Three Musketeers, although I'm told by many other people it's probably not most people's favorite Dumas, right? Is that the Count of, Count of Monte Cristo? It's Count of Monte Cristo, Man in the Iron Mask. Maybe one of the other ones I think is supposed to be. I think it's Man in the Iron Mask is, is most people's favorite, but I don't know. I, I saw the movie when I was a kid, but I don't remember much about it. Neither of you had read this before. I had not. I had read uh, an abridged version when yeah. I was a kid. I kind of think I might have read a children's illustrated version of Three Musketeers when I was about eight, but I only vaguely remember doing so. The names all seem kind of familiar to me was about all. Did it look something like this? It did not. No, it was, it's a series of uh, comic, comic illustrations. You've got, you've got one side of the page is a drawing and the other side is very large print. And there's a whole series of them. I read the time machine to Alex. I read war of the world. I read read a lot of stuff. It was pretty good at introducing me to the great literature, but you're not really reading the. For little kids. You mean? 
Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was seven or eight when I read them and it maybe would have been a little bit, it was, it was a challenge for me to read it at seven. Let's just say it was enough prose for that. But this was the first time I ever really engaged with it. Had you guys seen the movies of this? I think I've seen most of the movies. Yeah. They always have the same structural problem. Is it the same structural problem that the book has where it kind of goes on and on without a whole lot happening for gigantic swaths of the uh, material? No, it has rather the opposite problem. Try and do too many things. They don't really have any intrigue. And the Cardinal Richelieu is always this uh, comic book villain, uh, usually played by Tim Curry. Tim Curry. In the 93 version. Is he in the Kiefer Sutherland version? Yeah, that was the 93 version. I never saw that one. I remember it as being an attempt to ride on the coattails of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because it was like the same sort of filming and the same kind of actors and had a Brian Adams song. So I think it was, uh, I think they were really trying to get get some more of that, uh, that sweet Prince of Thieves money. Yeah, and weirdly kind of like Young Guns too. Yes, it was almost like if Young Guns and Prince of Thieves had a baby, it would be yeah. The Three Musketeers, the 1993 version. Is Kiefer Sutherland in both of those? Yes. I think, I think he, he plays Athos. He plays but he's in Young Guns, right? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. That's, that's the one. That's what I was trying to remember is who was in that. I, I can't remember if anybody is in both Prince of Thieves and Young Guns. I can't play Kevin Bacon with, with those two movies. So who wants to make a stab at the synopsis? That's always our dread moment. How are we going to do the synopsis this time? Are we going to stick with our idea of saying, um, and then having to pass? Did everybody feel like that worked? I don't know if that worked. How about this? How about, how about we start the synopsis and we have to drink every time we say, um, no, I don't know if that's going to work either. But what, what are we drinking, by the way? That's an easy conversation. Well, it was really kind of you, Dave, to send me this Anjou wine. Oh, you went with the Anjou. Oh, yes. And it was very kind of you to, to send me that bottle of Anjou, much like in the book where D'Artagnan's good friend sent him this bottle of Anjou. Wait, wait, Bill. I Did didn't Dave send you that wine? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't send you anything. But it's delicious. Oh, oh sorry, oh, Bill. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> good, good, good. I was hoping that was a gag. Yeah, I was like, oh, no, Bill thinks I sent him a bottle of wine. It's very kind of me. Yeah, good. I like that. Well done. Nice, nicely. I think we. I think, I think Chris and I kind of stepped on your, on your bit, but oh, well. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I feel like we were participating in what? Chateau de Rulier. It, it is. It's a Chenin Blanc. Oh, is it the same thing you have? Well, th- no, that's why well, I do have. I have another bottle of Chenin Blanc, but this is just a rose. This is uh, also an Anjou wine. Oh, you guys did do Anjou. I thought we talked about doing Gascon, but the only I had Gascon wine I could find in the local Total Wine was actually just called Gascon and, and made in Argentina. So I figured probably, probably not. Yeah, no, that's no good. Well, I probably shouldn't even admit what I ended up getting because I went to Giant to get groceries today with the kids and I was thinking, okay, well, let me just check and see what they have. And I found several bottles of wine from the south of France, which I was trying to do Gascony. Apparently that's impossible, but I found Cote de Rhone, a couple other things like that. And then I couldn't look anything up on my phone because they didn't have any cell phone service in, in the Giant for some reason at University Mall. So I had to try to remember which provinces were closest to where Gascony is. And so I was picking things. And then I realized I'm staying in a hotel room and I have no corkscrew. So it has to be a twist off bottle. And I'm actually surprised I found this. I kind of thought maybe French wine wasn't allowed to have a twist off label. Like maybe that would be something they would require is that it's closed with a cork. But I did find a twist off bottle of Sauvignon Blanc called French Blue. And I don't even know what region it's from. So I have completely failed in this endeavor. It, it's it's Bordeaux. 
It is a board job. Wow, I didn't even know they made wine in the high C packet. One of those things you have to punch through really carefully. So by the third or fourth uh, bag of wine, you're in a lot of trouble. You're going to spray it all over the place. So I've got uh, a Sauvignon Blanc that is from France, but that's the best I could do. Sorry. Is Anjou good? You guys enjoying the Anjou? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's actually surprisingly good. It, um, I'm going to let it mellow out a little bit, but like acidic up front, but it mellows out quite nicely. I, I'm not a wine guy, so I don't have the language for it, but I enjoy it. Well, okay. so the, with the Gascon wines, the red wines, a lot of the red wines are like the Malbecs, which are, are originally from the Gascon region. Here here in the States, definitely here in California, it's it's hard to find a French Malbec. Easy to find Argentinian Malbecs. I thought Malbec was from Argentina. I don't know where I got, maybe just because well, it's Well, it, it originated, it originated in, in that French region. Um, it did, okay, that's what, yeah. okay. And, and, and still persists. I don't know that they necessarily distribute it or send it out as much. The, okay. the issue with it was there was a big uh, blight for uh, for Malbecs, as I understand it, and uh, it kind of killed off the French Malbec industry. And then they discovered they had a bunch of strains of it in Argentina, and that's why it became such a big thing down there. Is this, is this part of the big phylloxera blight, or is, it, or is this a different one? I couldn't tell you. There's the big one that basically wiped out the entire French wine industry, and that's why we have California wine today, because it was like they almost lost the French wine. Essentially, it was so bad. I think they actually had to reseed a lot of French wine with grapes from California because there was so much damage done at the time. But I, I didn't do any research on it, so I'm sure there are people listening out now, right out there right now, who are or aware of yeah. full of poop. But anyway, so there is some story like that. Well, and with the Anjou wines, actually Anjou grapes are are Chenin Blanc grapes. Okay, but Anjou is a place, right? So theoretically, so Anjou is part of the Loire region. Which includes Anjou and I forget the other one that starts with an S. It's like Sar something. Do you just pick this information up through osmosis, living as close as you do to Napa? More or less, and and I did a little bit of research on it. Oh, and he's worked in a lot of bars. He's, he's I've of worked a... in bars. Sure, that's yeah. true. I always forget about that. So I'd like to take a, a shot at uh, summarizing the book in a slightly non-linear way, if that works for you guys. Um, oh yeah. The only thing I like better than reading a 673-page book is trying to remember it in non-linear fashion. Okay, go ahead. Let's do this. Well, it, in my brain, it's it's split up into three parts. So the first part is all about adventure, excitement, D'Artagnan proving himself. The middle part is, as you said, stuff drags on way too long, and it's really hard to summarize in any concise way at all. But it involves meaning the, all the milady. Uh, shenanigans the, the beginning of the milady shenanigans the lover shell siege the the part where they go to war and then the last third is the the milady denouement it's all about intrigue and wars on paper between nation states and the and the conclusion that's a that's breaking it into three parts essentially yeah because that's what it is we meet d'artagnan as the first musketeer and sorry that's not correct as a non-musketeer, wants to be a musketeer, who comes in and meets the other guys, starts out by trying to fight them. They all are going to have a duel. So I, I really love the first chapter. D'Artagnan is given three things from his dad to, to cherish and hold always. And hopefully you remember what they were. It's a letter as a letter of introduction to Mr. Travel to join the musketeers. Not it's his family's honored sacred sword. And it's the uh, the old horse that his his father had that he's supposed to keep with him. And, and at the end of the very first chapter, he's broken the sword, he's lost the letter, and then he sells the horse, so he's got some money in Paris. Pretty good. I think one of the running themes of this with the characters is that a gentleman in this era is not supposed to concern himself with money. 
And so money is constantly a problem for these guys. And then they get it and they just throw it away immediately. On the they just stupid. drink it away, really. They drink it, they give it away. They, they, you know, say they don't need it and then they need it or they gambled it away. Right. So I read some things about Dumas afterwards that made me think differently about this. I thought he was saying, oh, these are just amazing cavalier gentlemen and this is the way they behave. But there's a lot in this book that is a critique of the way people behaved in the ensemble regime. And that's pointing that out. It's very similar to Tolstoy. If you've ever read War and Peace, all the gentlemen gambling away everything and putting themselves in like lifelong debt with like one game of whatever it is that they play is very similar. So I think it's actually a critique of people behaving that way, which I like a lot better than me supposed to think that they're cool because I, I can't stand people acting that way. That drives me nuts. So, so rather than glorifying it, he's kind of showing the stupidity of it all. They're fools. I, I think I was, that, I mean, it's close to something that very much surprised me about this book is like, what a bunch of idiots the Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan are. Like they're not yeah. amazing warriors who are always right. So they're, they're idiots most of the time, but we can get into that more later. They seem to be pretty dang good warriors from what I can tell, but yeah, they are constantly doing stupid and foolhardy things based on what we they see. They are at the siege, right? Like at the siege, they kill all those guys and knocking the wall down and shoot them. And they're, they're really good. What I noticed is they're really good with their guns. D'Artagnan's the only one that does particularly well in the sword fights. The other guys seem to lose their sword fights as often as they win them. They they were valorous in terms of being willing to sword fight to the death, but they didn't seem to win their fights. I was I had thought of this as being, you know, like the three musketeers were going to be these guys that just were undefeatable with a sword, but really they're actually better with their guns, I noticed. I was surprised by that. I think the only time any of them ever really lose is one of them when they're at a deliberate disadvantage, when they're outnumbered or going into a fight wounded or something like that. I suppose so. But it definitely wasn't like a case of them killing 50 guys with their swords. Like the way I was thinking of it as like a swashbuckling, like swashbuckling, one of those old pirate movies where like, you know, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. just always wins all of his sword fights and he's just, yep. he's just better than everybody. But Well, and that's but, definitely how the 93 film and the 2011 film depict all four of them, right? They're just... And the, and the Musketeers the, as these... BAs with their swords that always win. Yeah, like taking on, you know, three, four, ten times the number of Cardinal Richelieu's guard. Yeah, the guardsmen, right? So is D'Artagnan technically part of Richelieu's guards at the beginning? Because he gets a job not as a musketeer. I believe he's part of the king's guard as opposed to the cardinal's guard. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think that's Which right. is what, what the musketeers were. The musketeers were originally the king's guard. Richelieu, and it's interesting because in the films, Richelieu is going through these efforts to abolish and get rid of I thought it was kind of funny. Bill, do you remember when we went hiking in Las Cruces uh, and I almost killed you with hiking up that mountain? Yeah, yeah. There's a great big, huge mountain there that you have to go, one of the steepest, hardest parts, you have to go around this great big, huge piece of granite called the Gray Eminence. And that's apparently Cardinal Richelieu's nickname. Oh. So apparently that, that giant mountain that we climbed, that we were you know almost dying on, is named after Cardinal Richelieu. So we're like two musketeers fighting against we were riding against Richelieu. That was a ridiculous hike. I mean, it was. it is considered like the most challenging day hike in the state of New Mexico. And every time I, every time I would try it, I'd be like, oh, come on. It can't be that bad. It's like four miles. So did you guys have trouble telling Athos, Porthos, and Aramis apart? No. 
No? Okay, I was having a lot of trouble with that. Can you give me brief descriptions of which one is which? D'Artagnan, I'm good on. I, I had a very strong sense of his character. Uh, so Athos is, I think of him as uh, the wise. You know, he is kind of the nominal musketeer leader, He's older than the rest of them, and uh, is a former disgraced nobleman. Aramis is the religious one who wants to join the clergy. And Porthos, I I always think Porthos the Portly because of the old pictures, uh, who's engrossed in earthly pleasures. Okay. That's, yeah, that's kind of, is Aramis just pretending to be religious or is he really religious? Isn't he actually meeting with, with ladies sometimes when he's supposed to be studying his theology or is that just? Well, he had been I, I, a priest, I think. I suppose okay. the 1600s, that's not exactly uh, truly verboten yet. It's not? I mean, it's France. Come on. Oh, well, it's forbidden. It's just people do it. All right. Well, they just do it anyway. All right. So do we sort of have an idea what the plot was? No, not really. We know that we introduced D'Artagnan. He makes friends with these guys by fight, by essentially agreeing to fight them. By then they accidentally into... insulting him because he's a toothless Gascon. But then he ends up being, I think, pretty clearly the smartest one of them, more socially adept overall. He doesn't seem to be particularly guileless throughout the rest of the of the book. Maybe he's uncouth. I guess maybe he has bad manners. Does he not take most of his clues from Aramis? And from Athos a little bit, too. I think Athos was kind of considered a something of an older... Statesman. Statesman, fathery figure. They get sent on a mission, essentially, by the king. The mission was unclear to me. They, had, they were supposed to go to England. They are explicitly not sent on the mission by the king because the king doesn't know a damn thing about it. They, they're sent on a mission by the queen. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. Okay. But it's not the Cardinal, I guess, is what I was thinking. But yes, right. that's by the Queen, by the by uh, Anne d'Autriche. Right. Because her lover, the Duke of Buckingham, last time they were in, he was in Paris. They had a wonderful social evening where he left with some of her diamond studs. And their mission is to get them back so that she can show them to the King to prove she still has them and save her honor. And I, side plot being that Milady de Winter, who uh-huh. is, we come to find out later on, is the former wife thought to be dead of Athos. Athos, right. Because he is a noble Baron de Fer, maybe? Was it Count de Fer, perhaps? Comte, Comte de la Fer, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Get, they get sent on this mission, but then they don't go, right? Nobody ever gets to England. Except Milady, right? They do, actually. Uh, he loses his uh, companions one by one in a various uh, yes, set of, right. of yeah. traps. And D'Artagnan makes it to England, meets with Buckingham. And Buckingham has the most famous jewelers in England put together le- replicas of the stolen diamond studs and thwarts the Cardinal's plan to... I had a lot of difficulty reading this book. I'm not going to lie. I, my, my overall feeling on the way Dumas writes is that there's a whole lot of extra verbiage. And what I realized about it is I was reading through these scenes and I realized there's a lot of effort to tell me exactly where everybody's standing in rooms and how much money everything costs and all these details that make it so that I forget what the actual plot is by the time I've read all this stuff and gotten through it. And I think it's because of he wrote for the theater. And I think there's a lot of attention to the details that would have been useful in the theater. As in like, you know, where people are standing and things that I do not care about in the novel. Like, I'm not going to ask you any questions about. It's it's very funny you brought up Dickens a while back uh, because 
in a similar vein, uh, Dumas was a serialized writer, paid by length in a lot of ways. And oh, think, yeah, okay. That that makes sense, too, yeah. That you can sense. really, I think, see the serialization of a lot of affects that appear throughout the book, because you'll, you'll have entire chapters where people say peste all the time, or blood, which is supposed to be God's blood, but you can't say God in, in the early 1800s, and so they just apostrophe. That was one of my favorite things I learned is that expressions like sacre bleu are because they because bleu rhymes with dieu. So you can't say dieu. So you oh. say sacre bleu. And what you mean is sacred God. You're trying to say God damn it, basically. That's cool. Was, I had no idea. That's really cool. That was one of my favorite things I learned reading this book. I'd never thought that through. It makes perfect sense. I was just generally kind of struggling to read the book in a lot of ways, if I'm being honest. When I would sit down and read it, I, you know, like I read the last 50 pages today and it, it went pretty good the last 50, but there were times when I was trying to read a few pages at night before bed and I was just like, oh man, could something please happen? You know, it was just the bit where uh, the lady is in the prison cell seemed like it took forever i mean oh, i really actually enjoyed that part okay, i did too so I'm, glad, I'm glad somebody did it was it was it was hard hard for me to get through but i never buy into these things in literature or in film where someone falls in love or is seduced by someone in a very short time so maybe that's just the way i'm built i just kind of find that to be implausible but I, I thought that was rather a novel way to go about it well i think milady is just a really interesting character i agree uh, i did make the note about that sequence that it's very interesting to spend such a long time on the villainess at her lowest point and then to have her make a comeback i did like what happened i just meant it took a long time uh, well and really she was the main antagonist of the of the story Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I mean. So take, to take the antagonist, and there was still a good 250 pages left in the book when she's at her lowest point, and then she has to make a comeback, almost to the point where you kind of root for her a little bit. And that's a surprising thing to do in a book, I think. That's Well, she escapes. She mm -hmm. ends up meeting back up with Cardinal, and then ends up off at this convent with the love interest of D'Artagnan. Right. Kills her. Well, first fools her. Fools, fools her. her. Convinces her that she's a friend and that she's uh, she's been sent there to help her. I was definitely like, don't drink that. I, I knew that wasn't a good idea. Like, I, I know you didn't want to be on that lady's side. So it didn't. And, and she, she also doesn't just escape. She um, uses her feminine wiles to convince a Puritan who's supposed to be like the most uh, resistant to this. You're talking about the guard? Yeah, uh, John Felton. Oh. Uh, to forsake his, his oaths and assassinate the Duke of Buckingham, who was about to lead an invasion of France. I, I think it's, I just, one of my least favorite things about that is I think it's really implausible that a religious fundamentalist would be that gullible. Well, it's a historical event. No, I know. I, I'm kidding. I, I find it very plausible oh. that a religious fundamentalist would be that gullible. That's exactly the kind of person I would expect to be duped very easily. <laughs> that is a person who by, by definition has already been duped and can be duped again. But yes, it is. It's a historical. I don't know if obviously the the Milady thing is not historical, but John Felton is a is a, you know, it's a, it's a fictionalization of a fictionalization region. of the actual assassination of the Duke of Buckingham. So, yeah. yeah. 
That part, that part is true. Um, there are historical characters throughout this. Obviously, the big one is Richelieu, I think. In terms of being a character, the king appears as well. Yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Arguably, Richelieu is a more important historical figure than Louis XIII. That gets back to your uh, your point that this is the, the purpose of this book is to be social commentary at the time. Because it was written after the first French Revolution, during the return of the monarchy, and before the second French Revolution. And he's pointing out that Richelieu is the most important person in France. The king doesn't really do anything. The power that you have within the kingdom is dependent on your standing with either the cardinal or the or the king. Yeah, definitely. This was written during the July monarchy, which is also, I, I actually read... My wife had agreed to do a show with me a long time ago. We were supposed to do Madame Bovary. So we read Flaubert. I dutifully read the book, but my wife was so busy with things like being a surgeon that she just couldn't get around to it. Anyway, I ended up reading Flaubert for no good reason. But it, it is also, there's a lot of great French literature written during the July monarchy. It was a very fertile period in French history. So, And um, Le Miserable wasn't written then, but it takes no, place. I think, I think Victor Hugo's later and then... Uh, but it, but the story itself takes place during the July monarchy, right? I don't think so. I okay. think it's before the July monarchy. I think it's more like in the 1820s. It's a failed... It's not the 1848 revolution, I don't think. I think it's a failed one before that. Right, but, which took place during the July monarchy. I don't I don't remember. I, okay. I got the impression it's a little earlier, but I could be wrong. I I, I can't remember the details of that. I, I do kind of remember. I don't think it's the 1848 revolution. It's definitely not the French Revolution that happened. No, definitely not. It's a, it fails. The book was first serialized March to July 1844. March to July of 1844, right. Yeah, just a couple of years before the 48 revolution. So clearly a lot of... Yeah renewed resistance to the monarchy and to the ideas of the Ancien Regime are very important in 1844. So that's a lot of what's going on under the surface of this book. It's pretty much contemporary. No, it is contemporary with Dickens. Not pretty much. It's 100% contemporary with Dickens, who is also serializing books um, in, in Britain at the same time, you know, to the point where they were hugely popular. I actually don't know how popular these were. I mean, they're in French. They're probably not as popular, but this is like this is a time, like you said, the serialization was such a big deal. There were people in New York waiting at the docks for the ships that would come in during Dickens' books to be the first people in America to find out and then run and tell everybody what happened in, in the latest installment of, you know, Great Expectations or whatever. So this is uh, the Game of Thrones of, of 1844. So this is a big but deal. the Harry Potter release of... Harry Potter release of 1844, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is this is the Half-Blood Prince, like a... Of... <laughs> Of 1844, so it, 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 I don't think it can be overstated what a big what a big cultural phenomenon these kind of books were. Well, let's talk about Milady herself because she makes a really interesting foil to the nominal hero of the story, D'Artagnan, who okay. we know is a brash swordsman who doesn't think ahead, and you know and yet, all of them in vigor. And yet, con and was convinc convincing enough to fool her. And I was going to say game. not just. Not just convincing, but plotted. I mean, he's, he planned the whole thing out in advance and really fooled her. So he's he not did for a short while. But she, in contrast, is a thoroughly evil, beautiful mass man mass manipulator, master manipulator. I guess. Uh, I mean, no Mila Jovovich. You could probably make some kind of an argument that she's a female version of D'Artagnan in some ways. I bet from and it's not from my perspective. Like I don't see men and women in this in this light but i would think in that time 
the kinds of weapons she uses, like poison and her wits and her looks and things like that, would have been the version of the gun and the sword of D'Artagnan. Yeah. And, and yeah. the horse riding and stuff like that. And she's getting what her wants, what, what she wants in a world of men with using those weapons. And maybe you could you could kind of deconstruct that to say, like, is she really any worse than what the men are doing? I mean, she does, she murders people, but they all have people killed too, and they, they kill do. people. I and there's the, the moment with D'Artagnan and her mistress and her maid, which so uh, that's yeah, he's a real slime bucket there, right? Questionable consent there, yeah. For yeah, sure. no, I mean he gets consent, but it's definitely slimy. It's not good behavior. It's it's no worse than the manipulations that she would be guilty of. What are her motivations? I mean, she yes. was she was seeking power and money from the cardinal for herself. For herself, okay. And I think perpetuating that. It is rather funny. We don't get a better view of that because primarily we see her as just driven by revenge and by wanting to harm the people. It's almost like a like a like a, like an just an evil character. All they yeah. want is self-aggrandizement and to harm others, and that doesn't really ring terribly true to me. I think somebody would have. There's there's something going on in her character with the flirtily that I don't quite understand, and her past that I don't quite understand. So and that it, so that she had a tattoo of the fleur de lis, which apparently at the time, and I don't know how historically accurate it was, they tattooed that on her as the sign of being someone who had formerly been imprisoned. I didn't understand that. I, I don't know about the historicity of that at all, or what that would mean, or why did she go to prison? Do we know that? Well, she didn't actually. I think it got explained by the man in the red cape at the very end who comes in and fills in her backstory. Um, uh, the executioner of Lille or whatever his name is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how she uh, seduced his brother who was in the church and uh, his brother was imprisoned and escaped and he was blamed for it. And so he tracked her down and tattooed her somewhat extrajudiciously. Extrajudicially. Judicious. Judicious. Yeah, no, not, not judiciously. That would just be doing it really fast. <laughs> So extrajudicially <laughs> tattooed. Yeah, extra and um, so, yeah, my understanding was the, the fleur de lis was the, the sign that you were condemned to die as opposed to that you had been in prison. But I, I could be very wrong. I think, I think condemnation to death is what you got when you were a felon in those days. I, I don't think there was any long-term imprisonment for things that were serious enough to be felony. I think, I think if you, you could be hanged for theft, certainly for murder, uh, for, for debt, in all kinds of things. So, I mean, if you're a peasant, of course. Well, you're just less likely to be convicted if you're a noble. But yeah, that's right. So, again, uh, probably a, cri a critique of the ancien regime. So, yeah, I mean, well, much like the U.S., the level of justice you get is dependent on the amount of money you have. She, she somehow, within that time, also ends up the spouse, the wife of Athos. Did we get an explanation of that? Is that is he her first husband? He is her second husband. Second husband. He was the lord of the place where she settled down with the brother of the executioner. So she traded up to Athos. There were, I, I never really got a full accounting of what happened there, but then she married the Count de Winter over in England. After they thought she was dead. But the crime is the murders, right? The thing she's in trouble for at the end is the murders, not the bigamy or whatever. Correct. The several murders. Well, she murders Madame Bonacieux. Uh, she attempts to murder D'Artagnan and accidentally murders some poor bastard who's just at the bar, as I recall. Uh, he was one of the people that uh, had gone out 
to battle with them and come back and who had tried to assassinate D'Artagnan that had been hired by Milady. Yeah, the most annoying character in the book, but speaking of people who are just with them when they're at war, is the Swiss guy. Okay, I, I, my, my vote would have gone to one of their uh, valets. Those yeah, guys. the valets are obnoxious. This is true. This is true. But the Switzer seems to serve no purpose. He's just standing around and like repeating things in a dumb German accent. And I'm just like, that is the cheapest joke. What is the purpose of this guy being? It's like somebody who would be standing there in a play to give a little like comic relief for no reason. And it really doesn't work for me in a novel, but maybe it's better in a serialization. I, I feel like this this took place uh, in a very specific time when France had just gotten spanked by the entirety of Europe. So there's probably a lot of nationalist tones that are we're just not picking up because we're out of context. There's references in it to things that are anachronistic that hadn't happened yet at the time that the book takes place, which some of them I caught and some of them I did not. Some of them were like references to poetry from the 1700s. And I'm like, that's first of all, a terrible reference. Second of all, not something I would have known about. Oh, the power of the letter, I thought was an interesting, the letter from Richelieu absolving whoever holds it of whatever conduct they've engaged in and it's apparently non-negotiable so you guys remember exactly what it said i've got it written down if not the holder of this letter has done what he has done on my authority and my authority alone something along those lines right basically and one thing you picked up on there is he wrote the letter to milady but he wrote they have done what he has done in the letter which i thought was weird that is weird. I don't really understand that. And to me, this is something. So there's there's this whole body of I don't know if it's really legal scholarship or literature scholarship or whatever, but it's called law and literature. And one of the things they talk about in it is the magical power that author, authors often give to documents like this, you know, for narrative reasons. Right. Because it can serve as a MacGuffin. Clearly, if you've got a letter that has all this power, the example that came up on the show earlier was in Casablanca, the letters of transit. Yes. I'm always, every time I watch that movie, I'm like, these are Nazis. Why wouldn't they just ignore and throw away the letters of transit? What do they care about these? But you need this totemic power to the letters to drive the story along. Otherwise, who cares if if Laszlo gets a hold of the letters? The Nazis will just tear them, throw, tear them up. You know, if Richelieu didn't want to honor this letter, he would just throw it away. Why wouldn't he? But I don't understand. There's no court that's going to help D'Artagnan once he's been killed. So. I- I think that's the whole point of it in my mind. It is a ploy to amuse Richelieu because Richelieu has always been kind of partial to D'Artagnan in spite of D'Artagnan foiling him time and time again because he respects the way he acts with honor and panache for no other word. He doesn't see him as a threat. And capability. I think he's just yeah. impressed how capable he is. And he also doesn't like Milady particularly much. even though he he So D'Artagnan solves that problem for him. He presents him with his own letter to to give him a, a fig leaf to cover it, and right. it, it it devolves back to the uh, the original problem that that it's a it's a political statement. You know your your power the power you have flows from whatever standing you have with the authorities in charge. So if you abuse them and you think that you shall be of use to them in the future, yeah, they'll overlook crimes. Sure, why not? Yeah, and that gives like a sort of in in-world reason for the Cardinal to actually honor the letter. That's, that makes it work a little better for me, yeah. But he went into that meeting expecting to die, and he 
talked himself out of it, sort of. And got a promotion. Yeah. And got a promotion and then tries to give the promotion to the other musketeers, none of whom want it. So he becomes a musketeer officially after their uh, sortie at the, at, the, at the siege of La Rochelle, right? That's, so he is actually officially a musketeer for like the last 300 pages or so of the book. I didn't 100% know this. I think I knew that D'Artagnan was not one of the musketeers. Or that there was actually four musketeers. I'm pretty sure I already knew that before I read this book. But that would be, I think, a lot of people's biggest surprise in reading this. Is that, yeah. Oh, it's actually about four musketeers. Here's a question. Tartanian was the main character. He's the main character and he's not one of the musketeers, right? Right. Here's not one question. of the three musketeers. Off the top of your head, how many musketeers are on the candy bar? Funny you say that. I thought it was three. I'm guessing it's three, but I don't know. There's a picture, right? Isn't there, isn't there an icon of the three musketeers on there? Not on the mini. Oh, not on the mini. Huh? It does say uh, three. You are awesome. That's nice. A little affirmation right before you uh, eat candy. That's good. I, like that. I looked um, up the old 1970s Three Musketeers uh, candy bar, and there are indeed three musketeers on it. Okay, I kind of figured there would be, but so so D'Artagnan gets left off of the of the not presumably, really. yeah. But presumably, the candy was created at some point in the first half of this novel. And so I don't think we've actually talked about the uh, the denouement, the uh, the way it all wraps up with with Milady and uh, the Musketeers. Well, she's captured after she kills Constance Bonacieux, who incidentally was D'Artagnan's landlord's wife. Just throwing that out there. And Nobody they formed a quick relationship, too, those two. Constance and he and D'Artagnan kind of all of a sudden came together and he had been, he was like being nice and they kind of just fell in love. It's a nice name for her, right? Considering her behavior, Constance, it's really not. <laughs> that had to be an intended joke. Right? I, I think so. Yeah, I think that's because she basically just keeps running off with a different guy, who every every guy that talks to her. Again, probably a comment on the loveless marriages that existed. Although I would think that would probably still be mostly the case in 1840s France, but that's pretty much what Madame Bovary is about as well. I wrote down a little note because I was thinking all the little details, like how much the horses cost. There's a lot of horse trading and how much they cost. Literal, yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking about it and I was thinking, have you guys, I don't know if you remember this movie as well as I do, but Stand By Me, when yeah. uh, the main character, Gordy, tells everybody the story about Lardass and the pie eating contest. Greatest part and, of them. And everybody throws up and in a contest. Everybody loves the story. They're all laughing. And then, and then the one kid, Vern, is like real quiet. And he's like, wait a minute. There's one thing I don't understand. He's like, yeah. Did Lardass have to pay to get into the contest? No, no, Vern. They just let him in. He's like, oh, okay, great story then. And I'm thinking all this stuff about the horses and how much they cost was written for that guy who reads the story. <laughs> and then at the end, he's like, wait a minute. I don't understand something important. How much did the yellow horse cost versus how many pistoles did they get for this? How many echoes add up to a Louis? That's what I'm. That's what really matters here. I bet the part that really drove you crazy was when one of the musketeers gambled away his horse. Was... Uh, one of the things that drove me crazy was when he gambles away D'Artagnan's stuff. Yeah, he doesn't not gamble even... away his own stuff. He gambles away D'Artagnan. And I'm like, you know, I, I went to law school. I know this. You can only sell or gamble away your ownership in something. You cannot gamble away someone else's ownership in something. Actually, that's a way to get around the, uh, if, if I sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, I'm selling you my rights in the Brooklyn Bridge, which are zero. So, Bill, did you, uh, real quick, did you notice the profession of D'Artagnan's landlord? No, what was it? He was a seller of cambric. In other words... Oh, Mercer, Mercer, Mercer. That's right. I didn't notice that. A, a fabric salesman. Yes. Right. I did. I looked that up. Actually, I was like, what the hell is a Mercer? It's I think I may, may have 
there was somebody else who had a who had a profession that was a that was a specific kind of lawyer, and I can't remember what it was later in the book. I don't know what it was, but there there were there were quite a few medievalisms in this that were kind of confusing. Did you guys understand the monetary system at all? No, I never will. I'm, it was completely over my head. There were leaves, livres. There were Louis. There were Ecu. There were centimes. There were well, Louis were uh, gold pieces. Livre were silver pieces, I believe. Okay, well that would. Less help. sure about the Anku and the rest of it, but yeah. Okay, well that's a start. At least that would make sense why some of them seem to be kind. Of, and then obviously pistoles was the the thing we heard about all the time. But I don't. Yeah, even know. like the more common currency. Yeah. How about this? Is probably a little more useful. I. You guys know what a league is? You're about a furlong, yeah. I, I looked that one up because it's come up before. It's it's a it's about three miles and nobody agrees how far. It's different all over the place and at different times. So completely useless as a as a uh, standard of measurement, if you ask me. But that means that Captain Nemo went sixty thousand miles under the sea. Yeah, makes sense. Well, I mean, I have to say, twenty thousand leagues under the sea. I never understood when I was a kid that that meant linear distance, not how far down under the sea. Because I was like, did they not know that the sea wasn't sixty thousand miles deep back then? Like that seems really stupid. But... So wrapping up the story. Oh yes, you want to talk about the ending? She has to lose her head. Pretty much, yeah. They put her on trial, and two and a half ex-husbands that they have speak up, and uh, she gets her head cut off. Then D'Artagnan goes back and meets with the Count, or sorry, the uh, the Cardinal Richelieu. Yep. And gives him the letter of pardon that was written from Lady, and he gets off himself and gets promotion. And then we get the epilogue. And so was that a social, another social commentary, just on royalty saying off with their head and that being no i think you were supposed to feel revenged upon the character when she dies i don't, I don't think you're supposed to regret that she was killed right what about the lack of punishment for d'artagnan what is so talk me through it what, what does he need to be punished for extrajudicial killing is usually frowned upon especially mm -hmm. when killing one of the cardinal's own agents who did he kill i'm, I'm forgetting Milady. oh well d'artagnan didn't kill her i mean he certainly presented it that way to the cardinal I, I didn't. No, think I thought he it. presented as the executioner having done it, which they were saying was acceptable because it was the executioner who was supposed to be doing it in the first place. This particular executioner apparently just goes around the countryside doing it willy nilly. So I don't know if I don't know if uh... there there was no judicial proceeding at all. The executioner branded her on his own. They held a farce of a trial. There was no judge. Is she actually a noble though? Well, she's a countess in England. Married to a to a count, but that was fraudulent, right? Which count? Um, Athos. She was married to Athos. And De Winter. Yeah. Well, yeah, De Winter later, but he's he's in a different country. Well, I don't know. I guess you still count as a noble, even though you're from a different country, right? Well, no, I think actually he was supposedly from. I think the count De Winter was from France. It was his brother who uh, okay. came back looking for her after finding out he had been killed by her, who was from England. Okay. Yeah. I guess I thought that was his castle when they went back to England, Baron de Winter's place, the, the place where Felton was. Which, by the way, they're climbing, they're escaping from that place, climbing down a rope, right? Yep. Yeah. He's like hanging a rope around his neck as they climb down the rope. And at one point he says something and she faints. Women faint a lot in these books. But she's does not fall to her death upon fainting, which I didn't understand. Yeah, they, they tied her hands together and put it around his neck before they started climbing. Oh, okay. Well, that actually makes sense then. Okay, that's good. That I was thinking that was one of those details that some of these old novelists would mess. Like um, Robinson Crusoe, um, stripping off all of his clothing, swimming out to the shipwreck, and then filling his pockets with all the food he could find. Things like that. Like 
simply, simply used to make an industry of pointing out stupidities like that in old books. I'm glad I brought that up because um, that, that clears that up. So let's bust out the biggest surprise and I guess we'll have done with it, right? That sound good to you guys? What did you guys, did anything surprise you in this? What? Yeah. I didn't realize that D'Artagnan, I mean, I, I guess I, thinking of Three Musketeers, I've always thought it was like these three characters. I never really, I mean, I guess I kind of picked it up in the films. Uh-huh. But I never really thought about him being the lead character. Okay. Yeah, he's kind of a sidekick in the films. Yeah. Oh, is he really? Hmm. I think but so. Never seen any of the any of the films, so. All right. Yeah, that yeah I think sense. that was my biggest surprise. Well, at least okay. in the more like the old film, he was definitely the lead. How about you, Chris? Anything surprise you in this one? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up reading this Three Musketeers book, which is about 380 pages and uh, definitely abridged. And it's a nice, tight, wonderful read. So I've always thought of this as like a breezy adventure book, which I yeah. think I sold it to you guys as when we <laughs> discussed reading this. I said, oh, it's it's going to be super easy to read. Don't worry about it. And so when I, I downloaded the full novel, I was shocked to find out it's twice as long. And I, honestly, I don't think quite as good. I'm, I'm not sure the translation we had does it justice. Um, you always, you always want to be very careful about judging something you're not reading in the original language. That's, I think, I think it goes without saying that that's a caveat that I would always give, especially because I'm complaining about the prose to some extent. So I, yes. you know, what, what the heck do I know? I didn't read it in French and I couldn't if, it, if I had it. So yeah, I think that's read different versions of Beowulf, for example. And, and I got very different reads depending on how good they were at well, I don't even know how good they were at translating because I'm not reading the original, but right. you get different feelings from reading different translations. No, it's funny though, with Beowulf, I have a uh, one with the old English on one page and the and the modern, uh, the Seamus Haney on the other page. Yeah. And it's funny because you cannot read old English as a modern English speaker. You cannot just look at old English, but you can look at the words and sort of be like, oh, that's, that's what this is saying. Like, if I see the English, I can almost kind of back translate a little bit. So you can get a sense of what the original was like. Like you can pick out, you know, where the words are and you can see those kennings and things like that and how somebody chose to translate them into modern English. And you can kind of judge, oh, well, that was an interesting way to do that. So you know, so I, I was taking German at the time that I did my old English. I, I studied German as well, and German helps me with that kind it, of thing. Yeah. It helps tremendously, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I probably wouldn't be able to do it just based on knowing English. One thing I forgot to mention about this is one of my favorite things about how the book was written is the framing sequence, which is really cool. The thing where he pretends to have found a letter. Actually, I don't even remember if it's pretending. I got confused later about whether it was true or not. I thought he was pretending to have found ancient documents talking about these characters. Now I'm thinking about it, I kind of think from some of the later reading I did that he did actually find some old documents and that there was somebody called D'Artagnan. So that these were actual these were actual people who had been given pseudonyms? But not just that, but that there was a secret, like an old forgotten document where he had sort of read these stories. And I don't think that's real. I think that's fake, but I thought that was a really fun framing sequence. Yeah, kind of like I, Claudius. Yeah, kind of like I, Claudius, yes. Oh, does that, I, I actually forgot about that. I read that. Does, it, does he do the, does Graves do the same thing at the beginning? Yes, of okay. Yeah, they, oh, that's interesting. He was yeah. claimed to have been found from ancient Roman texts, which is such a cool lead in. It's not true. Well, he, pro he probably got that from Dumas, honestly. I'm probably, sure. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. The other thing I thought was neat was, and again, I can't corroborate this, but I read it's the first time anybody used the phrase to be continued. Obviously, right. which would be French, but 
the first time anybody ever ended something by saying to be continued and then wanted people to read it again. I thought that was amazing. That is really cool. That's kind of a big one. But but I think my biggest surprise for, for reading this, and I don't know why I didn't think of it because it was patently obvious to me the second I started reading, is how much this inspired The Princess Bride. The connections between this and The Princess Bride were like huge. And I was like, oh, I, it, The Princess Bride didn't spring forth fully formed as much as I always thought it did, which is one of my favorite movies. There's definitely an element of this. And there's a Richelieu, except that Richelieu and Milady are one person in The Princess Bride, pretty much. Well, and you and, know, uh, The Princess Bride, the, the novel, the novel, the novel version of The Princess Bride is very similar in that they do, they do the exact same thing. He's, he's in this place where he's doing all of this research and uncovering oh, all this okay. information. I forgot that. I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was, that was pretty cool because that really, um, that illuminated what I would consider to be probably one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time, especially in terms of something that's just an original work. Um, I think that's one of my favorite movies ever. So that that opened that up for me, and that was pretty cool. But there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Oh, this is something I think, again, I think I was kind of aware of this, but that Dumas was a quarter African of African descent. Hmm. That is a cool fact about him, and I did not – I think I knew it, but that's kind of an interesting thing too. I think his father was from Haiti, if I'm not mistaken, and then came back to the New World – I'm sorry, came back to the old world and made his way in France. But I, I may have some of those details mixed up. But I thought that was pretty, a very interesting history. What are we doing with this? I think we should just put it up to a normal vote because I think technically this was Chris's pick. But there's three people so we can break a tie. Um, and I think we should go ahead and just put it up to a normal vote. So, Chris, are you sticking with it? I think uh, I was able to find it. It's not the book I remembered. It, it's not the high-flying you know, adventure book, but there's social commentary. There's just some really memorable characters and it is a notable adventure with a fantastic foil. So yes, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to stick with this one and say it's a classic and just caution anyone going into it. that It it does stall out a bit in the middle. At yeah, least for me. It doesn't read as, as the most quick, quick thing in the world. Yeah. There's, there's a, I, I, one of the, my favorite things about it is some of the, and this is something I've always appreciated about Dickens as well is there's a lot of original plotting, a lot of things that are going on in the plot that aren't just based off a hundred other things before. It may have something to do with the serialization. I think that may be a virtue of that medium is that you are able to have a more convoluted plot. I mean, that sounds maybe not like a virtue, but the way I phrased it, but I think it is, it is a virtue in some ways. So anyway, so Bill, what's your, uh, what's your feeling on I take well, you know what I what I really think is most fascinating is just the different takes that have been created out of the story. Okay. In terms of the film versions, the theatrical cinematic versions of of the story have so many similarities, but also just huge numbers of differences. But it all comes back to this original story and Definitely overly verbose, but I think that we can chalk that up to some degree. For me, as far as the vote on this, I, you know, I was, what I wanted to say is just that there's so many cool variations of the Three Musketeers story, right? Yeah. From things that Disney has done, things like there have been, I don't know how many films have been made on this. There's a series, there's a show now. Or there has been a show that went multiple seasons that told the story. 
when I looked at the, uh, I was actually thinking that I was thinking, would this make a good serialized TV show? I was like, yeah, it probably would actually, if you, especially cause you could, I, I'm sure you could get at least one season out of this book. That would be a good season of a show. And I think it uh, went like three. But one of the things I noticed is that a lot of the adaptations up for obvious reasons were in French. So they weren't anything I was familiar with, but I think there's been dozens of film adaptations of this and at least two or three in English that I can think of. So I'm, I'm sure there's quite a few. I think at least three of the, of the first, first book, even of the first book, not of even. The first in book. So that's something I didn't know. The three Musketeers I know are in the man in the iron mask. Are they in anything else or is it just the man in the iron mask? Well, as far as the novels, there was the 20 years after, I don't know. And, and I haven't read any of those, so I can't tell okay. you. Okay. I was just curious. I didn't know whether anybody knew that off the top of their head. All right. So what does that lead you to, Bill? Oh, you said you're surprised by the adaptations. Did you have anything else about voting for it or not? Well, I mean, I think I, I think that going towards supporting the idea of the of Dumas being a, a this and this novel being a classic. I think I think so. I think this is a classic for the for the fact that it has been taken and we were talking about how it like how going into like the princess bride right it just right. like and and i think there if we were to really deep dive on it more so then we would we would come up with probably others that people have taken from this so yeah i think it is classic okay i mean this is a pretty important book it would be pretty it would be pretty untoward to vote against it completely. And by the way, I'm already outvoted, so I can say anything I want. I can I can bring the hottest of the hot takes right now, and and it doesn't matter. So maybe I should just run bring with it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I should just, maybe I should just run with it and say that this is garbage. But um, go, go go full Stephen A. Smith and just say something completely <laughs> unsupported. Yeah, I think I think this is I think this is a classic. I don't know if this is his best book, and I wish I could say something smarter on that. I I love what Chris was talking about about maybe reading this in an abridgment because it does kind of go on, and it's not it's not it's pretty long. You wouldn't be you could you could chop off two or three hundred pages pretty easily, and I think still get the gist of this. So it has some flaws. It's not my favorite thing I've ever read, but is it a classic? I think I think that's for sure. I mean, it's so influential. I mean, how many? great works of literature have candy bars named after them. I think that nothing comes to mind. I literally can't think of another one. I mean, there's the baby Ruth, which is not about Babe Ruth, by the way. Do you guys know that? No, please elucidate us. The, the baby Ruth is Grover Cleveland's daughter. That's who the candy bar is named after. Oh, you know, I think I actually heard that somewhere on a political podcast many years ago. Yeah. It's a weird little, weird little thing. But anyway, so I don't know why I'm talking about that. But there's so there's no the book. Candy bar itself predate Babe Ruth. Yes, definitely. Well, yeah, Grover Cleveland's daughter would have been in like 1889 or something like that. that the candy bar was named. So Babe Ruth wouldn't yeah. have been famous until about 1920, give or take. Well, maybe a couple of years before that, but just after World War One. Wait, so was he named after the candy bar? I think he was named after baby ruth who was a famous like american personage it'd be like chelsea clinton it'd be like a name that everybody knows so his last name is ruth and people just sort of were like babe ruth it just kind of sounds like baby ruth it has a resonance in pop culture at the time i think that's just me spitballing i don't i don't know that for a fact but yes from chunk yeah it's very difficult to say baby ruth without pronouncing it like chunk and let's save that for the inevitable toasting the classics episode about goonies i'm gonna go ahead and vote for it 
But um, I definitely could see recommending to somebody to read something else by Dumas. And I wish I had a better commentary on that. I mean, I will say The Count of Monte Cristo is an excellent book. It is the prototypical revenge fantasy book, which sounds really weird to recommend, but it's it's just a captivating read. Okay. And did you know that The Count of Monte Cristo is not, in fact, named after the vegetable oil product? Crisco? (laughs) Sorry. It's It's not titled The Count of Monte Cristo? No, no, not no, no relation. So um, as a stand, it looks like we're voting for this. It looks like uh, Three Musketeers has it's their time. Up. It's their time now. It's they're not going up in Troy's bucket. So we are voting for this as a classic on Toasting the Classics. My name is Dave MacArthur. I'm Bill Hodges. Bye, everybody. Go ahead. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I've been Chris. Have a good night. All right. Good night, everybody. Peace out. That's it for episode 83 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some Jameson Irish whiskey for our discussion of U2's Joshua Tree. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your pick for favorite musketeer. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @reactivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Thank you.